What do you think? I think we're dead meat. Real dead meat. You're dead meat! Go ahead and laugh, you guys. If I ever find a little bastard, it's business. Dead meat. Welcome to the Dead Meat Podcast, an extension of the YouTube channel Dead Meat. I'm Detective James. And I'm Inspector Chelsea, and we're engaged, and we like to get scared together. All right, I figure we're so good at talking about murder every week. Why not see if we're good at also solving murders? Solving murders. Yeah, let's put our detective skills to the test. You, uh, I'm a huge fan of brain teasers and riddles and puzzles and I love escape rooms and I'm very I just love to solve a good problem you're very good at them too yes and I love reading (laughs) uh like murder short stories and stuff and so I have a collection of a few different kinds of shorts this week and you'll all be able to play along because they're specifically whodunits it's like the setup of the murder you've got your evidence and we're going to solve them together. So I have not read the, like, I don't know the answers to these. Um, so we have some that are actually from an old radio show. I think maybe, maybe we'll do, I think we'll do some of those first and okay. get us really in the mood because I think they're really fun and cheesy. I have some clips here from this radio show, or not even a radio show. These were, Little bumpers made in the 70s. They kind of aired between programs and stuff. And they're they're Ellery Queen's Minute Mysteries. And Ellery Queen was a kind of like a like a Sherlock Holmes type character. I think he was first published in books in like the thir- like early 30s, maybe. So a ton of different novels, um, TV shows. I think even like a movie in the 70s. Um, so he's been around for quite a while. He had a show in the, a radio show, I think in the 40s, where it was like an hour long and they would bring in celebrity guests to try and solve the murder like we're going to do now. And apparently the rate of celebrities solving them was very low, <laughs> which I think is great. But this, these that we're going to listen to are from the, the 70s and these are a minute long. And so it's like a very quick murder setup. And you have all the evidence you need, and it's like, can you solve it, you know, within the span of a couple seconds? Almost much. sounds like a murder riddle. A little, yeah, they're more riddles instead of a full-blown, like, murder mystery story, so. All right, so are you ready to solve some Ellery Queen murder mysteries? Yeah. And again, I have not listened to these. I've listened to one or two of them to see if they would be a good fit for this episode, but I I have a bunch of these where I have no idea. <laughs> You know what these are about this to This from be. the 70s? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so here we go. Here's our first. This is the, it's called the bathtub mystery. I think he even says, and I'm Ellery Queen, and this is the case I call the bathtub mystery. <laughs> and there is a case, by the way, that I, I told you about last night that I was really excited about, where the, the case is just called Mysterious Ham. That's what I'm looking forward to. I'm really looking forward to Mysterious Ham. So, <laughs> all right, here we go. <laughs> Ellery Queen's Minute Mysteries. This is Ellery Queen with a case I call the Bathtub Murder. Popular and respected Chauncey Miles was found dead, electrocuted in his own bathtub, and the police asked me to join the investigation. A butler named Brady said that Mr. Miles must have electrocuted himself when he touched a radio by the bathtub. Did he always keep a portable radio by the tub, I asked? No, said the butler, and that's why he's dead, poor man. 
I searched the bathroom further, and when I found tiny scratches on a pipe near the tub, I knew I had a murderer. The butler. In a moment, I'll tell you why. Okay, so we have a butler named Brady who is extreme. Oh, I thought it was Gravy. Oh, Gravy? Okay, well, we're going to call him Gravy. Yeah, Butler Gravy. He's extremely sus. Uh, I love that he's just like, the the Ellery Queen's like, does this guy always keep a radio by the tub? Oh, no, absolutely not. Just this one time because he's a fucking (laughs) idiot. So what, the clue he said it was was scratch marks on the the pipes? Yeah. Oh, interesting. I'm trying to. What pipes? I know this. I mean, old bathtub. We got like pipes. Right. I'm worried that this is like uh, a clue that would make more sense in some older fashioned infrastructure. I have. I have some. I don't know if we'll get to them, but I have a a book of uh, little mysteries like this from the 1930s that I tried solving some, and the answers were just like, "I'm sorry, what?" (laughs) Like things that I mean. Sense. like like based on like etiquette that doesn't exist anymore etiquette or just so. old i don't know equipment in houses that we wouldn't have yeah all right i'm gonna play this one more time okay it's short enough it is yeah so let me get uh, and i like his voice he has a good voice all right here we go and play. this is ellery queen with a case i call the bathtub murder Popular and respected Chauncey Miles was found dead, electrocuted in his own bathtub, and the police asked me to join the investigation. A butler named Brady said that Mr. Miles must have electrocuted himself when he touched a radio by the bathtub. Did he always keep a portable radio by the tub, I asked? No, said the butler, and that's why he's dead, poor man. I searched the bathroom further, and when I found tiny scratches on a pipe near the tub, I knew I had a murderer, the butler. In a moment, I'll tell you why. Okay, I think I know what it is. Tiny scratches. I think what it is is if he was trying to turn off the radio, he would just immediately have been electrocuted, right? Like, that doesn't suggest an immediate electrocution. It suggests, like, oh, I need to try and get out of the bathtub because the I, my butler's coming in and throwing the radio in. I guess it could <laughs> be that. <laughs> Do you have any theories? Uh, no, because he says it's the butler. Um, it's all, dude, it's always the butler. Of just course, a, Just yeah. a heads up. It's always the butler. I think the butler, uh, toot toot, drove the gravy train into the bathtub and drowned him and then put a radio there and was like, he electrocuted. He drove the gravy train into the, all right. He was drowned with gravy. I hope that's the right answer. Mm-hmm. Dude, I bet Mysterious Ham is... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Someone's getting drowned with gravy. All right, here's you a ham gravy. Here's yeah. our answer. In the case of the bathtub murder, it's not possible to electrocute yourself in a tub with a portable radio. It's merely powered by batteries. The scratches I found on the pipe proved that the butler had wired the tub for murder. Excuse me? Wait, what? Scratches on the pipe showed he that he wired, wired the tub. The tub. I mean, I guess a portable radio is better. The, I, no, that, that makes, makes sense. That makes sense. We, we should Like a portable, it. if you're plugging it in, it's not very portable. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. Wired the bathtub and <laughs> Dude, then I don't scratches. Know, man. Okay. So the thing that I think is so funny about some <laughs> of these is the solutions that are were like, yes, this definitively means this guy murdered someone would never hold up in court. <laughs> yeah. Like there's a lot, that's a big, big claim there. That's a there. big jump. The butler could just be like, D- what? It's, yeah. All right, here's, here's our next I bet one. there are so many people who are like, he said portable radio, guys. Come on. 
Yeah, I know. We'll get the next one. Promise. We got this. <laughs> this is Ellery Queen with a case I call the canned music. Sometimes the merest slip, the slightest word or two can trip up a suspect, particularly when it's a serious charge. In this case, the charge was murder, and police were holding a youthful suspect. He claimed he was skating with a friend at the time of the murder in a beautiful new rink with stereo, indirect lighting, the works. Skating to the skater's waltz, he said, was great fun. I believe you're lying, I said. And in a moment, I'll explain. Whoa, wow. what? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> the, guy, the kid says one thing, and the guy's like, no, liar, like, murderer. Yeah, I was skating today. It was great. You're a murderer. You're coming with me. Get in the van. <laughs> okay. I heard that the kid was uh, skating to the skater's waltz, but I didn't. I didn't catch some of the stuff before that. He said, "Yeah, it was a new skating ring outfitted with indirect lighting and stereo. The works." Indirect lighting. I. The fuck does that mean? Like recessed lighting. <laughs> here, let's listen to it one more time. Just lighting bounced off of mirrors. All right, and here skating we... and getting blinded by mirrors. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. Okay. One more time. Okay. Here we go. We got this. This is Ellery Queen with a case I call the canned music. Sometimes the merest slip, the slightest word or two can trip up a suspect, particularly when it's a serious charge. In this case, the charge was murder and police were holding a youthful suspect. He claimed he was skating with a friend at the time of the murder in a beautiful new rink with stereo, indirect lighting, the works. Skating to the skater's waltz, he said, was great fun. I believe you're lying, I said. And in a moment, I'll explain. James, I have no idea. He didn't even fucking mention a victim. <laughs> yeah. That, we can we even... point that out? There's yeah. not a body. We don't even know how he was murdered or... Or who was murdered. Like, it's something about the skater's waltz. But... I... He was skating with a friend. Watch the fucking thing be... Oh, the answer is the skater's waltz is a popular tune that you skate to by yourself. Everyone knows that. Yeah, that's, yeah, dude. I honestly think that's something like that. Or it's just like he said it was fun. It's not fun. Skating sucks. <laughs> okay. All right, but I would like to point out, I don't know who died. Yeah. I don't know whose murder we're trying to solve. I'm just saying, you can tell we're professional detectives by our outfits. And as a professional detective, I'll say it's very hard to solve a murder when you don't know who was murdered. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Here I we think go. this. I think this detective, Ellery Queen, is making up murders I think this, to I, give himself work. I think the answer to this is going to be infuriating. I'm super okay, excited. Okay, here we go. All right. In the case of the canned music, a new modern skating rink would probably play modern music, not the skater's waltz. I checked Fuck the rink, and the manager proved I was correct. <laughs> he hadn't even heard of the skater's waltz. What is the skater's waltz? It could be a new song. You don't know. Or, like, the idea that a kid, like, that's the equivalent today of, like, yeah, I was at the roller rink skating to, like, a funky town. And, yeah. Like, you you did a murder. No no kid who's 15 listens Cuff him, to boys. Cuff him, boys. He's talking boy, about lip toys. sync. <laughs> All right. Okay. Come on, Ellery. You gotta you gotta give us one that we can work with. Here. Yeah. All right. I'm just I, I'm realizing I picked way too many of these to do, so I'm just picking. No, because we're gonna do them until we get one, hun. Yes. So it's good that you picked okay. a lot. Fair, fair, fair. Skaters Waltz. Here we go. All right. This is Ellery Queen with a case I call the crossword puzzle murder. When a Dr. Ingalls was found dead in his study, a crossword puzzle <laughs> unfinished. Oh, I have pause, pause for Dr. Ingalls. Sorry, we're solving the murder of a Dr. Ingalls. <laughs> yeah, is... was it perhaps the Allied Forces? I know. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Dr. Ingalls was doing a crossword puzzle in his cell at Nuremberg. Like, <laughs> <laughs> all right, let me restart it. Okay. Jesus Christ. All right. Okay. This is Ellery Queen with a case I call the crossword puzzle murder. When a Dr. Ingalls was found dead in his study, a crossword puzzle unfinished in front of him, police called me in knowing I was an avid crossword puzzle fan. A prime suspect was the doctor's son, Arnold. I noticed the number seven down was circled. I checked the puzzle and the number called for the two-letter word for a three-toed sloth. Ingalls had identified his murderer before he died. It was young Arnold Ingalls, the doctor's son. In a moment, I'll tell you why. Okay. Holy shit. Okay, so it was... Ingalls was murdered by his son, Arnold. Arnold. He was doing a crossword puzzle and was solving, or at least had circled, seven down, which was a two-letter word for a three-toed sloth. It was a two-letter word? Isn't that? Let me double check. Okay. Junior? But that, like, a three-toed sloth? I don't get the three-toed sloth part. I was going to say A-E for Arnold Ingalls, but maybe Junior. Maybe he wrote those. I mean, the the... Puzzle is unfinished. I don't know if he wrote in an answer for seven down. I think the, it'll be junior. Something or, like it. Or, or AE, his initials, and it'll be like, well, that's not a three-toed sloth. Yeah. Okay. Let's, Let's see uh, if it's as simple as that. In the case of the crossword puzzle murder, the two-letter word for a sloth is spelled AI. AI also happens to be the initials of Arnold Engels. Angles, not angles. Okay, I was right. You though. were right. You were right. I yeah. just, mi- yeah, You're I thought right. it was angles. AI, yeah. interesting. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we got one. Is that true on a three-toed sloth name? An AI. Yeah. Artificial intelligence sloth. Are sloths not yeah, real? Yeah, AI sloth. Yeah, that's the thing. I'm I'm googling it right now. Wow. Okay, so we all learned that. Wow, uh, these are harder than I thought they would be. Scrabble aficionados, there you go. Because yeah. there is one of these I listened to to just see what the vibe was like, and it was a very easy one where it was like the murderer was like, I, could, I couldn't have done it. I I was... And the guy's clothes were wet, and it was raining, and if he, his alibi was true, he wouldn't be wet. <laughs> Which is, that's easy. This isn't like AI, yes, a name for a sloth. I got it. Yeah, I did. Uh, right, kind of. Let's do another one. Kind of. Half credit. Three oh, quarters credit. Ad for Domino's. This is Ellery Queen with the case I call the Deep Sea Murder. When a young scuba diver was found murdered, his equipment tampered with, it appeared to be the work of a fellow diver. I questioned him at length. I don't think you can prove I did anything to his equipment, he said confidently. Besides, I rather think he panicked in the deep water and tried to get to the surface in a hurry. Sounds like a good alibi, doesn't it? It was for a while, I replied, but you're guilty of murder. In a moment, I'll tell you why. Dude, I know. Benz? A scuba diver wouldn't, if they were panicking and tried to get to the surface, they would know. About the Benz. About getting the Benz. Yeah. That has to be it, right? It has to be it. All right, here we go. We had no other information, Mr. Queen. In the case of the deep sea murder, the suspect knew you cannot surface quickly from a deep dive. His statement that the victim tried to get to the surface in a hurry proved his guilt. Yay! He shouldn't have made that statement. All right, let's do one last Ellery Queen, and obviously it's the one that's just called Mysterious Ham. If we don't get Mysterious Ham right, I'll be so sad. I hope the murderer ends up being John Ratzenberger. Oh. That's a Toy Story reference. Or John Ham. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or just gravy, drowning in gravy. J- what? J- gravy? Yeah. 
The butler named Gravy. Uh, butler Gravy. <laughs> Drowning you know someone gravy. in Gravy. All right, here we go. Mysterious ham, Ellery Queen. I'll be very sad if it means ham, like a like a like a like radio? a person, like a comedian, like a oh, like the or ham radio or ham radio. It better be an actual oh, fucking man, ham. It better be ham. Let's go. This is Ellery Queen with the case I call the mysterious ham. I received a call from a ham operator in the Midwest who thought he was on to something big, spy stuff. He picked up a voice transmitting near a big airbase, and the language was one he couldn't understand. It isn't any language I ever heard in North America, he said, and doesn't sound European or Oriental. I think I'll have an answer for you once I get a listen, I said. And quickly I knew it was no spy. In a moment, I'll tell you who it was. Pig Latin. Yep, yeah, I think you're right. Because it's, it's ham. ham. Pig Latin, yeah. In the case of the mysterious ham... Our ham operator friend didn't realize there are dozens of American Indian languages still spoken in America. And today, more than a dozen Indian ham radio operators. Cool answer, and I appreciate Ellery Queen raising awareness of the fact that there are lots of Indian American ham radio, which is a cool thing. How are you supposed to come to that? (laughs) But also just like... This then you you kind of assume this guy is like it's no language I've ever heard it's not European or it's, and so it's like oh man this must be like aliens or something but no it's just Native Americans. How are you supposed to? Get, you don't even get like a snippet of the language or a word used or anything. I think Pig Latin is such a better answer to that. Yeah, because it's, it's a play on words. Yeah. All right, man. Ellery Queen can go fucking. Didn't even give us talking about ham, ham radio. Ellery, I think Ellery Queen gets off on like describing these mysteries to you and knowing that the way he describes them is like just enough to where you could maybe get it right, but no. you're clearly not, and it makes him feel so fucking smart. No, I think Ellery Queen's resume said murder mystery detective on it, even though that wasn't true. And someone called him out and was like, "Hey, could you do a minute murder mystery on our radio show?" And he said. Uh, yeah, and then this is the kind of bullshit he came up with. Yeah. Flying off the seat of his pants. To, to, to remind everyone, Ellery Queen's a fictional character. No, I am gonna write letters to Ellery Queen and complain about his radio program from 50 years ago. Hey, want to talk to you this week about our sponsor, Shudder. We all love Shudder. We're all friends with shutter on this here podcast it's the netflix of horror they constantly have new weird cool stuff they've been killing it with their original movies there's actually a ton i need to catch up on because they've been releasing so many which is great in this year where we didn't have too many proper movie releases but shutter has just been churning them out like no one's business and they've all been quality they are really taking chances and making some really really cool stuff that is not cookie cutter and you can stream it on all of your favorite devices including amazon fire tv xbox roku i'm just reading this list of i mean it's just all the devices i personally love their really obscure movie collections because there is a movie on here that i saw just the ending of at least 10 years ago, and it has driven me nuts since then. I could not figure out what movie it was. I tried Googling the scene I saw, nothing came up. And then finally one day I realized it's the film Don't Torture a Duckling. 
which is now on Shudder. Uh, it's a movie by Fulci. I won't say anything else except the ending of it is one of the craziest things I've ever seen. And I, to the point where I, I spent the last decade trying to find what movie it was from. So I'm going to finally sit and watch this whole thing. <laughs> so thank you, Shudder. If you want to try Shudder free for 30 days, go to Shudder.com and use promo code DEADMEAT. 30. Once again, that's Shudder, S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com and use promo code DEADMEAT30. Our other sponsor this week is Upstart. Uh, it's hard out there right now, financially especially for so many people. Um, it's It sucks to have to feel like you need to take out a loan on the reason that Upstart is different than other lenders is they take more into consideration than your credit score. So Upstart at least acknowledges that you are more than a credit score. They will factor more in to your qualification for a loan than that. So if you want to see if you qualify, you can do a five-minute online rate check. To see your rate up front, you can see exactly what you would be paying for loans from $1,000 to $50,000. If you want to check that out, you can go to upstart.com slash deadmeat. That's upstart.com slash deadmeat. Don't forget to use our URL specifically. There's not like a promo code or anything. And the fine print loan amounts will be determined based on your credit and income and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash deadmeat. All right, well, let's do some <laughs> mysteries where these are mini mysteries that um, I'm I'm so happy we're able to do this. Uh, we're doing some mini mysteries by Hi Conrad, who is an author and TV writer. He wrote Monk. Um, he has a bunch of mystery novels. He's a, he's a great, like an amazing mystery writer. And on his website, I found it years ago and I don't know how. Again, I'm just obsessed with brain teasers and riddles. Literally just for fun, I'll Google like hard, like hard brain teasers. And I found <laughs> his website where he has a, a, a page of mini mysteries that are like, you can read them in a couple minutes and he has the solution on a different page so you can solve it yourself. And I, I've, read a bunch of them and I I thought about them the other day and I was like, oh, I wonder if we could read some because, you know, like Ellery Queen's public domain, that's all good to play. But I want to make sure that we could do um, High Conrad's Mysteries. And sure enough, he gave us permission to ah. do it. And also I went and bought his new book <laughs> that he has out, which if you like this episode and you have fun solving mysteries with us, this isn't a, a compilation of miniature mysteries, which he also has those in book form. The Fixer's Daughter. The fi yes. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I forget. We also just do audio. So <laughs> I, can't, I can't just. Yeah. It's uh, his new book is The Fixer's Daughter. And um, let me read. Right. It's uh, the fixer's daughter pits father against daughter in a twisted tale of murder, deadly secrets, and family loyalty. So I I love his stuff. Um, it's High Conrad H Y H Y Conrad. Yes, um, cool. and he very kindly has given me permission to read a bunch of his mini mysteries for us to solve. Great, thank you, Mr. Conrad. Yeah, that was that was so generous of him. I'm very excited. Um, I think his writing is so much fun. Let's see. All right. So here we go. I have a bunch that I picked out 
And again, I had to kind of skim these to pick them out to make sure they, they were ones I hadn't done before. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. It's going to be a mixed bag of like, you know, styles of crime and what we got going on here. So, all right, I'll begin this one. This one's called Blackmail Can Be Deadly. Sherman was angry and fully prepared to yell at someone. This morning, he'd heard that the post office was issuing a new stamp celebrating the career of his great-great-grandfather. That would have been wonderful news, quite wonderful indeed, except that the new Sherlock Holmes stamp was to be part of a series commemorating fictional heroes. And as Sherman told anyone who would listen, his ancestor was in no way fictional. Sherman strutted into the main post office building only to see three other people at the counter, yelling at the city's postmaster. The diminutive detective recognized one of them. It was Harry O'Doul, his next-door neighbor. Harry waved him to join them. This is Sherman Holmes, he announced to the others, from over on Maple Street. Sherman, we need to find out who runs P.O. Box 447. I cannot divulge that information, the postmaster said with a shrug. Why do you need to know, Sherman asked his neighbor. Can we trust him, whispered the woman in the group. Absolutely, said Harry. He's a private detective. The three took Sherman aside to privately explain their predicament. I received an anonymous letter this morning, said the woman. She had introduced herself as Joyce. It was blackmail. The snake knew things about me. Bad things. The letter told me to send $500 a month to Post Office Box 447. I came right over here to find out who it is. I had the same experience, said Harry with obvious embarrassment. I don't know how the blackmailer found out. When I got here, I found Joyce already trying to get information about the box. I got here a minute or so later, said the other man. My name's Bill, and don't tell us to go to the police. I'd rather pay than have the police find out about me. How do you think the blackmailer discovered your secrets, asked Sherman. I don't know, said Joyce. We're all strangers to each other. We might have been involved in the same sort of activity, the thing we're being blackmailed for, but that's just a guess. Sherman was intrigued by the situation, but didn't hold out much hope. Even if you discover the blackmailer's identity, it won't do you any good, not unless you go to the police. Maybe we can do something, said Harry darkly. Maybe we can take matters into our own hands. Bill nodded. If you have any ideas on how to catch him, Mr. Holmes, just tell your neighbor here. We'll give him our phone numbers. Sherman wasn't too worried. He honestly didn't think they would do anything illegal. But that same evening, he heard about the murder on the news. His next-door neighbor, Harry O'Doul, had been found shot dead in a downtown alley. According to the local newscaster, there had been a struggle and Harry had been shot at close range with his own gun. Sherman flipped off the TV and sat in the dark, thinking. Had Harry really done what he threatened? Had he discovered the blackmailer's identity and gone after that person with a gun? Sherman thought for a few more minutes, then reached for his phone and pressed number one on his speed dial. Sergeant Wilson, I hear you have another murder. I'd like to help out if I may. Who does Sherman suspect and what aroused his suspicions? Uh, well, I imagine it's the suspect is one of the previous characters already introduced. Yes, so it's Joyce, absolutely going to be Bill or the postmaster. Ooh, the postmaster's a good one, actually. Because he was all like, I can't divulge that information, which is probably true. That is probably true. I don't think you can just go to the post office and ask. It's like going to a hotel. They're not going to tell you what room someone is in. Yeah. yeah. But uh, let me see. Shot with his own gun, I feel is probably a clue. 
Yes, absolutely. Can you reread from uh, him hearing the crime? His next door neighbor, Harry O'Doul, had been found shot dead in a downtown alley. According to the local newscaster, there had been a struggle and Harry had been shot at close range with his own gun. Um, oh, as Sherman flipped off the TV and sat in the dark thinking, had Harry really done what he'd threatened? Had he discovered the blackmailer's identity and gone after that person with a gun? Sherman thought for a few more minutes, then reached for his phone and pressed number one on his speed dial. So I don't think it's Harry. No, if he's it's because yeah, I mean, well, or it could well, no, but I don't think it's yeah. <laughs> there could be a situation where he was and someone figured out he was, but I don't think that's what's going on here. Oh, okay. I um, see. yeah. The one guy's bill. He says, "Don't tell us to go to the police. I'd rather pay than have the police." But but that could just I don't know what their secret is. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. Let's see. Okay, so Harry says we need to find out who runs PO Box four four seven. Okay, so they would all know 447. That yeah. I was looking to see if like one of them knew and the other one, I, you know, I don't know. So they're looking to see who owns 447 because that person presumably would be the one blackmailing them by telling them to deposit money into that P.O. box. Oh, yeah. man. I know. This is, that, this is why I picked this. I, I skimmed these. And ones where I didn't immediately know the answer. And even if I found myself thinking about it, I couldn't figure it out. I put those in here. And this was one where I was genuinely, I I didn't try to think too hard about it. But Mm -hmm. now thinking about it, I'm like, oh, man, I don't know. Yeah. Could we hear the dialogue of Bill and Joyce once more when they're talking to him in the post office? Yes, for sure. Okay, so. The three took Sherman aside to privately explain their predicament. I received an anonymous letter this morning. She introduced herself as Joyce. It was blackmail. The snake knew things about me, bad things. The letter told me to send $500 a month to post office box 447. I came right over here to find out who it is. I had the same experience, said Harry, with obvious embarrassment. I don't know how the blackmailer found out. When I got here, I found Joyce already trying to get information about the box. I got here a minute or so later, said the other man. My name's Bill, and don't tell us to go to the police. I'd rather pay than have the police find out about me. How do you think the blackmailer discovered your secrets, asked Sherman. I don't know, said Joyce. We're all strangers to each other. We might have been involved in the same sort of activity, the thing we're being blackmailed for, but that's just a guess. Oh, man. My I, my suspicions are towards bill for some reason i think just because he pipes in last yeah and he doesn't he doesn't provide as much information as joyce yeah and he says don't tell us to go to the police (laughs) (laughs) yeah but i almost kind of wonder if what if it was the postmaster because he would know he he could go through everyone's mail what do you mean like oh you know oh and he would know and he would know their secrets yeah Ooh, that's my guess i think I might just have to glom onto your guess. Do you, let's see, because or else we're gonna. I mean, I I'm, I initially raised Postmaster as a possible suspect. I so. think you're right, though, but I think it's because he can go through everyone's mail. And okay. They don't know each other. He's the only person That's, who would. Yeah, know if they all don't them. know each other. Okay. Let's see the solution. Try that. Yeah, let's see. Sherman arrived at the precinct house in a state of agitation and marched straight into the sergeant's office. I blame myself, Sherman said before Wilson could even say hello. 
Harry O'Doul was my neighbor. I should have been able to piece it together. Don't blame yourself, Wilson said. You couldn't have known O'Doul was being blackmailed. I did know, Sherman said. Oh, Wilson looked confused. Then it is your fault. Yeah. (laughs) Off to jail. Do you know why? We found Harry O'Doul's diary. Turns out he torched his company's building last year to collect on the insurance. No one knew except for the person blackmailing him. I didn't know about the arson, Sherman admitted, but the blackmailer calls himself Bill. Harry knew this and went to attack him. I imagine Bill acted in self-defense. Interesting, said Wilson. What do you know about Bill? I can describe him, Sherman said. I assume he used to work for the arson squad. That's how he knew about the fire. He was also blackmailing a woman named Joyce. When Bill went to check on his post office box, he found Harry and Joyce already there, so he pretended to be another victim of the blackmailer. And how did Harry know about Bill? That's the part I should have known. When Harry introduced us, he told Bill, I live on Maple Street. Bill supposedly knew nothing about Harry. They were strangers. And yet Bill called us neighbors. He somehow knew that Harry lived on Maple Street, too. Fuck! Damn it. He Like, he's good. I love his mysteries. Wait, when did Bill refer to them as neighbors? Let's see when he referred to them as neighbors. I mean, I still think it was the postmaster. I still think it was the postmaster, too. Yeah, Bill nodded. If you have any ideas on how to catch him, just tell your neighbor here. We'll give him our phone numbers. He wouldn't know that if they didn't know each other. They didn't know each other. Yeah. And let me me see if... uh, Yeah, no, they never mention that their neighbors like allowed. Mm, Damn. Okay. 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 These are good. I am realizing now these are much easier to solve sitting and reading quietly where yeah. I can reread stuff. So I'm I feel like we're making ourselves look so stupid. Conrad. Conrad. <laughs> okay, I kind of want to do this one because it's called Big Daddy Brown. Yeah. Hell yeah. It's another Sherman Holmes one too. Can I, I like read Sherman. Big Daddy Brown. Sherman, what? Oh, yeah, you can read Big Daddy Brown. Here you go. Big Daddy Brown. Big Daddy Brown. All right. Sherman Holmes had been born and raised in Alabama, and despite his mania for Victorian England, had a deep, true affection for the American South. About once a year, usually on a warm spring weekend, he would gas up his antique Bentley and make the long pilgrimage back home. Sherman himself was an orphan, but he had always kept in contact with his childhood neighbors, Big Daddy Brown and his clan. On one of his annual visits, the odd little detective found himself joining the Browns in every Alabamian's favorite pastime, a picnic. The scene was a state park where the old Southern family commandeered a picnic table. Big Daddy spread the tablecloth. Two of the grown children, Tiffany and Billy, unloaded the wicker baskets. The third, Julius, poured iced tea from a thermos, while Big Mama unpacked the crystal salt and pepper shakers and handed out cloth napkins. Sherman added his own touch, a candelabra tapped with citronella candles to keep away the bugs. Although he saw the Browns just once a year, Sherman felt he knew them intimately. Julius was close to his own age, while Tiffany and Billy, the twins, were a good ten years younger. None were married, as if forming a family of their own might be some sort of affront to the domineering father who controlled their lives. On the surface, the picnic resembled the dozen previous picnics he'd attended with the Browns, Billy flipped the burgers on the grill. Julius kept everyone's glass full. Tiffany and Big Mama hovered over the proceedings, doling out seconds and thirds, while Big Daddy slathered butter on his corn, spilling half of it on his plate and wiping the other half from his mouth with a napkin. But something was wrong. The jokes were strained, the affection too forced, and Sherman's sixth sense was kicking into gear. He tried to ignore it. 
Big Daddy's heart attack came suddenly near the end of the meal. The elderly man's fleshy face turned as white as his neatly trimmed mustache. His breathing grew heavy. Then he grasped his chest and collapsed backwards into the grass. Sherman and Julius rushed to Big Daddy's side. The others gathered around, looking on helplessly as the two men did their best to revive the stricken patriarch. He's dead, Julius whispered. Tiffany ran off to call an ambulance, but everyone knew it would be too late. He's had heart problems before, Billy said, then turned to comfort his mother. This was the best way to go, Mama, surrounded by family and eating his favorite food. Sherman had seen a few heart attacks in his time, and this certainly looked like one. He'd also seen more than a few poisonings. Mm. Sherman glanced over at Big Daddy's place at the table. His glass was half full of iced tea. His plate held the remains of potato salad, coleslaw, and the uneaten sliver of a hamburger bun. A clean but, a clean but rumpled napkin sat beside the plate right next to the crystal salt shaker. The detective's heart sank. Why did people try to get away with murder when he was around? It just didn't make any sense. Who killed Big Daddy? And what clue gave the killer away? Hmm, this is another one I skimmed and I wasn't sure right away. So I, yeah. I put it in here because I want to figure this one out. All right, so Big Daddy Brown, poisoned. Yes. By his enemies? No, by his family. Yeah. Uh, so the only thing I caught in this initial read was that he was eating corn with... A lot of butter, just spilling butter all around, wiping the other half of butter from his mouth with a napkin. The napkin was all crumpled too. Who was who was handing out napkins? Let's see. Um, Big Mama handed out cloth <gasps> napkins. Ooh. And what what about the crumpled napkin? Where was that? Let's it was see. next to the salt shaker, which I think I remember the mom also. Big Mama unpacked the crystal salt and pepper shakers and handed out cloth napkins. Uh, so he glanced over at Big Daddy's place at the table, glass half full of iced tea, plate held the remains of food, and a clean but rumpled napkin sat beside the plate right next to the crystal salt shaker. Clean but rumpled? So that would mean... Uh, like he that it's used... not. Yeah, he used. Uh, he wiped the other half of this butter from his mouth with a napkin, but the napkin it's at clean. the end of the scene is clean and rumpled. Yeah. So I think Big Mama took that napkin away that was poisoned. Yeah. And then replaced and then it just with a clean threw another one. Napkin there. Possibly. That's the closest thing I can think of, because that's the weird. Thing that, that is the discrepancy. Out. Yeah, a clean but rumpled napkin when he had already Been wiped wiping some butter his on face. It. Yeah, I think that's right. How do we find out? Oh, who? at the top, there's a solution. Tab. I see it. Uh, is that what we're saying, Big Mama? I think so. With the poison yeah. napkin. Yeah. All right. I don't want to turn you in, Sherman said softly. It was two days later, and the family was walking away from the burial site, heading back to the funeral home's limousine parked by the cemetery's gravel road. Sherman had maneuvered his way to Big Mama's side. Yes! They were out of earshot of the others and would be for the next minute or two. I don't want to turn you in, he repeated. Why did you do it? For the kids, said Big Mama. Her tone was eerily calm. You saw how it was all the time he pushed them down, controlled everything. Maybe now they can live their own lives. Me too, she added as an afterthought. You poisoned his napkin. Sherman had to show her that he knew. Every time he went to wipe his mouth, he inhaled a little poison. 
Then, after he collapsed and no one was looking, you replaced it with a clean napkin. That's what I noticed. A clean napkin. There should have been covered with butter. You can't prove it, Big Mama said with a thin smile. Even if you dig up the body and check it for poison, that napkin no longer exists. You can't prove a thing. I think Big Mama got away with it. Yeah, she might have. Wow. Damn. That's a good one. I'm I'm impressed with we, us. We got that one fast. Yeah. All right. Let's do let's do another one. Let's, All right. Um See, we're not we're not bad at this when they're modern day mysteries yeah, and not relying no, on. No, I, I love <laughs> I think I think High's mysteries are so well written. Because even if you think the solution could seem obvious. Because that one I could easily have guessed if I didn't think about it too hard. Oh, it's whoever was pouring the thermos because they have control of the thermos. And they're and the only person touching it and they can easily just dump poison. He had in. drunk half a glass of iced tea. Exactly. Well. Yeah, yeah. But his And ate a burger. Billy was flipping the burgers. So. Yeah. His solutions are are yeah, deceptive. I like it. Oh, this one, yeah, this one I, I was reading. This is from his um his little it's the little giant book of whodunits that I was skimming through um to prep for this. And this one just on like a very quick read. Again, I was trying I didn't want to like solve any and then like mm-hmm. oops, we can't do it. Um and on a quick read, I I couldn't figure this one out. So let's see if we can uh we can do it. Here we go. This one is called the suicidal house guest. Dr. Paul Yancey tiptoed out of the sick room, closing the door behind him. Uncle Ben needs peace and quiet, he told his brother and sister-in-law. The flu has left him weak and depressed, but the old man should make a full recovery. Thank goodness, replied Fritz with as much as much sincerity as he could muster. Uncle Ben had been staying with them ever since he got sick two weeks earlier. Every day, Fritz had to remind himself of the 30 million good reasons why he and Caroline had to be hospitable to the cantankerous old man. Call me if he gets worse, Paul said as he left the house. Why can't Paul take Uncle Ben in, Caroline whined, not for the first time. Very simple, Fritz explained again. The nicer we are to the old buzzard, the more he'll leave us in his will. A minute later, they heard the television go on in their uncle's ground floor room. At least when he's watching TV, he's not making demands, Caroline sighed. They listened as Uncle Ben channel served for a few minutes then switched off the set. An hour later, Caroline brought in his lunch on a tray. That's when they found Uncle Ben dead, a half-empty glass of water on his nightstand along with a completely empty bottle of liquid sleeping drops. As the body was removed, Officer Warren inspected the room. It seemed to have every convenience for a bedridden man. He counted all the electronic or battery-operated devices, the TV set mounted in a ceiling corner, the radio CD player within easy reach, the portable phone, the remote control for the blinds, an intercom, and last but not least, the remote control to adjust the adjustable bed. According to the medical examiner, the overdose killed him in just a few minutes, a rookie officer informed his superior. Since the bedroom window was locked from the inside and no one was seen entering the room, I think we can call this a definite suicide. Definite murder, Officer Warren countered. What was it about the room that made Warren suspect murder, and whom did he suspect? Oof. Yeah. By the way, this, I'm not sure if this counts. No, I would say this counts. There's a subgenre of of mini mysteries like this, or maybe I, I'm not familiar enough um, with this 
kind of writing to know if these are like also a full length novel phenomenon, but they're they're called locked room mysteries, which I love because they are mysteries that at glance they're impossible and they're usually ruled a suicide because the room is either locked or no one could have been in there. And there's just a bunch of objects and it's like, how did this murder happen then if it's seemingly impossible that anyone murdered them? And this is, I feel like this is kind of a locked room. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So Hmm. he's in a locked room with a whole bunch of automated stuff. Yeah, I don't think it's locked, but he was seemingly alone. And he was killed by sleeping drops and the coroner said it would have, killed him in just a few minutes Mm -hmm. so let me see so okay so the doctor was there and he left and i want to see how long it was um hmm, maybe it could have been the doctor because he says he like a minute after the after the doctor leaves a minute later they heard the tv go on and he channel serves for a few minutes and switches off the set and could he have just died right after that uh was the window open the i know it was locked were the blinds up i don't even think the room was locked it's just the the genre of story no yeah but he does mention that the window was locked so that like no one could have climbed in and out of the window okay yeah since the bedroom window was locked from the inside and no one was seen entering the room yeah yeah what about the blinds because he mentioned an automatic blinds does he say if they were up or down I don't know if it mentions it. My initial idea is that the doctor went in there, poisoned him, killed him, left, left with a remote for the TV. They mentioned and then did it from outside, turned it on so that they would hear it because they mentioned that he saw the remote for the blinds, right? Does he see the remote ooh, that's for good, the okay, TV? Okay, let me. Ooh, you're okay. You're good at these. Let's see. It's the pipe that I have a little corn cob pipe for people who that are just listening. That does help. All right. It's, <laughs> it, okay, so the room it, it it seemed to have every convenience for a bedridden man. He counted all the electronic or battery operated devices. The TV set mounted in a ceiling corner. The radio CD player within easy reach. So that is probably out if that's our theory he would be able to reach it mm-hmm. um the portable phone which is battery powered and not <laughs> cord uh the remote control for the blinds and intercom and last but not least the remote control to adjust the adjustable yeah the remote control is missing i yes. think yes okay yeah, the doctor took the here remote we go the here TV, we go did it outside when Officer, yeah, dude, when Officer Warren (laughs) counted off all the electronic or battery powered devices, the one he did not find was a TV remote control. It would have been impossible for a bedridden man to operate a ceiling mounted TV without a remote control. The last person claiming to see the victim alive was Dr. Yancey. Officer Warren theorized that the doctor killed his uncle before exiting the bedroom. He then took the remote control, left the house and sneaked around to Uncle Ben's window. By using the remote from outside the window, Dr. Yancey was able to give the impression that Uncle Ben was still alive. Yes. Hell yeah. Very good. All right, let's do another one. Yeah. Ooh, oh. I feel good about that There's one. There's so many. Okay, let's do a Halloween-themed one. I have a couple Halloween-themed oh, ones here. Let's 
let's do this one. This one's called The Halloween Devil. Do you want to read this one? Sure. Oh, it's another Sherman one. We're picking all the Sherman ones. I have more than just Sherman. I like how all the Sherman ones mention that he's like a little guy, a weird little guy. Yeah, (laughs) I like that too. The rain had ended in the afternoon, leaving a chilly but clear evening for the trick-or-treaters. As usual, Sherman donned his full Sherlock Holmes regalia and milled among the costumed youngsters on the street. Sherman was at his very happiest on Halloween. Same. It was growing late, and he was just passing a vacant lot when he heard a moan. Nothing moved in the darkened lot, but the observant little man noticed a single set of footprints in the mud. Hello, he called out and was answered with another moan. Sherman followed the prince into the lot, around the trash barrels and trees, until he found a young man collapsed in a corner. He'd been stabbed in the stomach. The wounds were more than superficial. He needed medical attention. Some guy in a devil mask, he groaned. Chased me with a knife for no reason. I ran in here, but I fell, and he got me. The wound was still bleeding. He must have thought I was dead. You'll be all right, Sherman promised. I'm going for help. Sirens were approaching. As Sherman emerged from the lot, he saw an ambulance and a patrol car a block down the street. Waddling at his top speed, he flagged down the ambulance (laughs) and told the paramedics the situation. Go get the guy in the lot, a familiar voice shouted from the depths of another nearby alley. You can't help this one. She's dead. The ambulance driver and crew did as they were told, leaving Sherman to push his way through the gathering crowd. Sergeant Gunther Wilson, the owner of the voice, stood over the body of a young woman in an angel costume. Stabbed? Sherman asked. Hi, Wilson's voice lacked its usual gruffness. <laughs> yeah, stabbed in the chest and stomach. Looks like she put up a fight before she died. Sherman informed Wilson about the other attack. That fits, Wilson said. People were mentioning some strange acting guy in a devil costume. The sergeant was interrupted by his two-way radio. The guy in the lot's going to make it, he told Sherman. My boys found a devil costume nearby, also a mask and a knife. Let's hope this was his last victim. Wilson told the patrolman to tape off the site. And check the crowd. I want to see any adult male not with kids and not wearing a costume. The patrolman and his partner returned a few minutes later with two men fitting that rather broad description. The first was a slight man, apparently in his 30s. A closer glance at the lines around the eyes in his jet-black toupee told Sherman that he was at least 10 years older. He was dressed in a black sweatshirt, black jeans, and a pair of slippers. What were you doing here? Wilson asked. I live here, the man said, pointing to a red brick house. The windows were dark and the house looked empty. I don't hand out candy. I was in my bedroom watching TV and ignoring the doorbell. When I heard the sirens, I came out. Is that a crime? (laughs) I thought this was America. (laughs) (laughs) No, sir. Wilson replied, turning to the second suspect, a man in his early 20s with a scraggly goatee and disheveled hair. My car broke down over on the next block, he answered without having to be asked. I was just walking up to some house to use their phone when your jackbooted buddy grabbed me. The sergeant took Sherman aside. At least we have a surviving witness, but he may not be much help if the attacker was wearing a mask. Well, if our survivor can't identify him, I can. I was hoping you'd say that, Wilson said with a grin. Who was the masked attacker? What clue gave him away? I mean, my first thought is the 
the attacker was the guy he found. Me too. Because there wasn't there the only set of one set of footprints leading to him. Yeah. And there was a struggle, so he might have gotten sliced. Uh, yeah, yeah, she did fight. Yeah. I think it was, might be just that. I think uh, it was that guy. Um, I could see the the misdirection of the guy with the slippers, though, because maybe those wouldn't leave footprints. Okay. Because they're just flat on the bottom. Fair enough to note. Yep. He found a young man collapsed in a corner. Nothing about a costume. Wait, when? Uh, when the was guy that? who was stabbed. Sorry. Oh. After the moaning. Yeah, and then what did they find? They found the costume nearby, though, right? They did. They found the devil costume nearby after the guy who was stabbed was like, some guy in a devil mask chased me with a knife for no reason. I ran in here, but I fell and he got me. Yeah, the one set of uh, footprints. Yeah, would seem to. A single set of footprints in the mud. Yeah. I think it's that guy. I feel like it's just that guy. The solution. I don't know how you do it, Wilson said with an obvious relief. Both alibis are weak. Either one of these guys could have been that could have been in that costume. Oh, it wasn't them, Sherman chuckled. It was the suspect you didn't meet, the guy in the vacant lot. The other victim? Wilson asked, his bushy eyebrows raised. But he's got serious stab wounds. Are you saying he did that to himself? Oh no, someone stabbed him. The girl. You said she fought back, correct? You're saying he stripped off the costume and ran into the lot, pretending to be a victim? Wilson wasn't buying it. No, why didn't he just run away? Why draw so much attention to himself? Because he needed medical help. If a man showed up at the hospital tonight with an unexplained stab wound, he'd be a suspect, of course. (laughs) Do you have any evidence to back up this wild theory? I do. The supposed victim said he'd been chased into the lot, then attacked. Yet I found only one set of footprints going in, and no footprints coming out. Maybe you missed seeing them? If someone is chasing you, his footprints are going to be highly close to yours. Nope, your forensics team will back me up. That so-called victim is your killer. Yeah, we did it. Yeah. The thing that I love about these short stories too is he so you have like Sherman and, and Wilson and Wilson's always just like yeah you you gotta get you're so fucking smart and there's another I want to see if I can do one more with um there's a detective I think Bixby who's this like she's a um a detective with a son who's like 12 and he she ends up dragging him to work with her and he's always able to figure shit out and you can just tell that she's questioning her entire life and hates getting owned by her kid constantly <laughs> it's so funny okay so this is a, a carol bixby one and her kid's name is jonah <laughs> i like these a lot okay detective carol bixby did her best not to bring jonah to murder scenes but sometimes <laughs> it couldn't be avoided like today They had been at the mall happily buying supplies for the new school year when the call came in. Judge Roberta Morton had been found shot to death in her home. This is really bad, Carol kept repeating as she raced out to the murder scene, screeching around corners with a red flashing bubble attached to her car roof. Jonah found himself belted into the passenger seat along for the furious ride. Why is it bad, he asked. Judge Morton had been receiving anonymous death threats. She was under police protection until today. 
and she gets killed the same day Jonah whistled? Wow, that is bad. (laughs) (laughs) Jonah and his mother arrived at the secluded country house and entered through a side door. A crime scene team was already on the premises along with Carol's partner, Detective Peter Pauling. He said hello to them both and quickly brought them up to speed. Dr. Morton was the last person to see his wife alive. They eyed a tall, angular man in hospital scrubs sitting on a sofa, his head buried in his hands. This morning, he says, was like any other morning. Pauling looked over his notes. Morton is a surgeon. He's up at 6 every day and out of the house by 6.30. Judge Morton gets up around 7. She makes coffee and then sits down and watches the morning news. Carol Bixby crossed to the television. It was still on and a technician was dusting it and nearly everything else for prints. There were slippers in front of a comfortable-looking chair and a cup of cold coffee on an end table. Did anyone hear the shot? Carol asked. No, said Detective Pauling. We're guessing the time of death was around 7.30 after she made coffee and before she got dressed for work. He pointed around the living room, recreating the scene. The judge is watching the news and traffic, just waking up when the doorbell rings. She opens the door and bang, shot twice in the chest. Carol and Jonah wandered over to the entry hall, now cordoned off with yellow tape. The body had been removed, but red slashes of blood still decorated the walls and floor. How far did the shooter get into the house? Carol asked the technician. Don't know, he answered. There was no reason for him to go inside, but we're dusting and taking samples just in case. The body had been discovered around noon by the mail carrier. He's still here, Detective Pauling told his partner. You want to speak with him? Carol and her son found the mailman standing beside his USPS truck taking nervous drags from a cigarette. Her car was in the driveway when I got here, he stammered. That was strange, but I thought maybe she was sick or taking the day off. Then I saw the front door open and something lying in the hall. He shivered. I didn't touch a thing, honest. I just called the cops. A technician was just leaving the house and stopped to give a a preliminary report. We found a lot of prints we assume are from Judge and Dr. Morton. A few places were wiped clean. The bell and the doorknob, as you might expect. Also the coffee maker and the TV remote. We'll know more by tomorrow. Detective Bixby was heading back into the house when she turned. Jonah wasn't following her. He was just standing on the front lawn thinking. What's the matter, she asked. Don't tell me you know who killed her. (laughs) Okay, I won't, said Jonah, but it was clear that he did. Who killed Judge Roberta Morton and what clues point to the killer? Hmm. A few things stick out to me. The fact that... um. One of the, there's a detail I thought was weird where her, I think her slippers are next to the couch. Um, I'm trying to find where that, it's hard to kind of scroll through this on my, on my phone here, but Mm -hmm. yeah, there were slippers in front of a comfortable looking chair and a cup of cold coffee on an end table. I just feel like, would you take off your slippers to then go answer the door? Because the doorbell rings, she opens the door and is shot twice. Yeah. Would you take, like, you would I don't put know. your slippers on and go open. Yeah. Door. Or, like, if you're sitting there with your slippers on, you wouldn't take them off to go. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's a weird detail to maybe. The TV remote had been wiped and yeah, the coffee machine. Let me. Oh, I feel like it was the husband before he left. And then he went through her routine of uh, making the coffee and turning the TV on and wiped his prints from the coffee machine and the TV remote. Ooh. And then just put her slippers there and put the coffee there. That 
Yeah, that could be it. To make it look like she was just doing her regular routine. But then another thing I thought was weird is the mailman says her car was in... What what time did the mailman say he got there? Noon. Oh, he said he got there at noon? I believe so. Okay, so then that's not... And she would have been gone. I thought he got there around the same time. And I was like, well, that's weird if he thinks it's suspicious that her car was there when it would be in the morning. Oh. But did it say he got there at noon? I think so. Oh, yeah. The body had been discovered around noon by the mail carrier. Mm -hmm. And he saw, yeah, he saw the front door open and something lying in the hall. So... When does it say she wakes up at 7? Because he wakes up at 6, leaves at 6.30. I think she wakes up at 7, starts making coffee. Yeah, so Dr. Morton was the last person to see her alive. Uh, This morning was like, oh, yeah, and he's sitting on the sofa with his head buried in his hands. This morning was like any other morning. He's a surgeon. He's up at 6 every day and out of the house by 6.30. Judge Morton gets up around seven. She makes coffee and then sits down and watches the morning news. Mm-hmm. And the TV's still on, so mm-hmm. it happened during that. My only ponderance is why she's by the front door, unless he killed her and put her there. I wondered if he rang the doorbell. Yeah, and if shot. he left. He, if he left and just came around the side of the house. Rang the doorbell. She woke up and went and answered it. He shot her, and then he went in and did and all, did all her stuff. like normal routine to make it look like, you know, yeah, she was still alive doing stuff before That's... he left for work or something. Well, just or to no, make it... he. Yeah. Just to make it look like her time of death was later than it, than it was. it would have been. Because I'm right. assuming he got to work on time that day. Yeah. Yeah. He says, yeah, out of the house by 6.30. So that's my guess. I think I think that's that's right. Carol Bixby was used to her son's clever theories, but now and then even she got exasperated. <laughs> How could you possibly know? There are no clues, no suspects, unless you count the mailman. Wrong. It's always the husband, Carol. <laughs> and no prince. That's the dude, Jonah said, the fact that there are no prints. Of course, the killer wiped them off. He also wiped them from the coffee maker and the TV remote. Carol frowned. You're right. That is a little weird. (laughs) Here's a good question, Jonah said. What would you think if you found her husband's prints on the coffee maker? Well, his mother thought. I think the doctor was lying about his alibi. He said that his wife always made coffee after he left the house, so her prints should be on it, not his. Jonah nodded. I think he killed her before he left for work this morning. He set the stage by making the coffee, turning on the TV, all that. Then he wiped off his prints. He had to. That would explain it. Carol smiled. I guess we need to talk to Dr. Morton about his wife. Guess you need to. Yikes. Dude, you can't kill a judge, dude. You're going to be in so much trouble. Yeah. Oh, man. I wish we had more time to do a bunch of these. I'm having fun. Yeah, they're fun. Yeah. Uh, we If anyone's been having a fun time doing them along with us, they should definitely look up Mr. High Conrad's yes. work. Yes. And you, you can find all of his many mysteries on his website. Uh, I mean, not all of them. He has several books of them of compilations but he has a few that you can read for free on his site and do they're a lot of fun i would be down to do another installment of these at some point because i have a list i (laughs) overestimated how many we would actually get through thank you so much to hi conrad again his book is the fixer's daughter please pick it up again this is not like this is not a sponsored bit yeah i I bought this for myself (laughs) 
<laughs> like, so I'm excited to read this because I love a good mystery. So yeah. All right. That's it for this week. Cool. Any idea for next week or are we playing it by ear? Yeah, we'll play it by ear. All righty. Well, in the meantime, you can follow Dead Meat on social media at Dead Meat James on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm at Carebex, C-A-R-E-B-E-C-C on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want merch, DeadMeatStore.com. And uh, until next time, I'm Detective James. I'm Inspector Chelsea. And this has been the Dead Meat Podcast. <laughs>